A reading from Ecclesiastes 2, 18 through 24, and 3, 1 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Yet they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, then must leave their fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This, too, is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all their hard work and anxiety? Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to tear build up, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to turn away, a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be quiet and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What do people really get for all their hard work? I have seen the burden God has placed on us all, yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. So I concluded there's nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are the gifts from God. And I know that whatever God does is final. Nothing can be added or taken away from it, for God's purpose is that people should fear him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be to God. How will I pay the credit card bill next month? How will I pay my mortgage? How can I afford that house? How do I patch things up with my manager? These are the types of questions that plague us and constitute the stuff of everyday life. Worrying about bills, mending and forging relationships, navigating and surviving day-to-day existence. Do you ever wish you could rise above the slog of everyday living? Go to another life space. Life in that space would be quiet and timeless. You're not burdened by bills or preserving your job or gaining social status. You don't worry in this space. It's a sublime space. It's a space where you're altogether aware of God. We're in a series, New Church, Old Wisdom, 
where we're introducing our church. And every church is unique in that a church is being formed by a particular group of people in a particular time. So in every sense, churches are new, but we're particularly new. We have a new building. We have new faces. And when you're forming a church, you have to think about what things you will intend for that church. And I often find that what happens in churches is churches, uh, people in churches tend to get very busy. And uh, we roll out a menu of activities. And people get busier and busier. But I wonder, uh, what, is, uh, what if you long for something different, something more? We're asking the question today, uh, what is it you want? What is it you want uh, from a church? Because uh, beneath the noise and the clutter and the clatter, what is it you want? So today is really, um, we're exploring this, this notion of desire, uh, our hungers, our dignified desires. We're exploring uh, what it is we want from life and what it is we want from a place and experience like this. And we're to go to the old wisdom of an old book called Ecclesiastes, and what he is going, the teacher is going to say is that we want is this thing he calls beauty. Now, I don't uh, really find that beauty is very emphasized in the church, and I don't know how you relate to beauty, and maybe beauty is something that... Um, some people relate to more than, the, than, than others. I first remember running across the notion of beauty about six years ago during our denominational national gathering. And one of the speakers was James Chung, uh, and he shared the question that every generation is asking. And he started with the baby boomers, and he said, the baby boomers are asking this question, is it true? That's why baby boomers love scripture so much. It's a question of truth. Next, Chung went to the Gen Xers. And the question the Gen Xers ask is, is it real? It's a question of authenticity. Third, he went to the millennials. And he said the millennials ask this question, is it good? It's a question of justice. And lastly, Chung said he didn't know what the Gen Z generation would value yet, but his instinct was that the question that they would be asking is, is it beautiful? It was a question of aesthetics. So when I heard Chung say this, I remember uh, that something opened up inside of me. You know, what happens when you see a beautiful piece of art or imagine standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon. Why is beauty important? Why is it that we tend to derive um, energy and motivation from beauty? Last week, we introduced Ecclesiastes. And again, it's a 3,000-year-old book. And so we're building our new church on the old wisdom of an old book. A wisdom book in the Bible. And if you didn't hear last week's sermon, uh, I hope you will go back and listen to it because these sermons build on each other. 
And there's a lot to understand just about the nature of the literature uh, in Ecclesiastes. But we said the author is the historical King Solomon, or he is a Solomon-like person. Although he doesn't name himself explicitly in the book, he only refers to himself as the teacher. And the teacher observes that there are three problems in life. One of them is the relentless march of time. Another is death. So you experience the march of time and then you die. And a third is injustice. And so today, we're particularly going to look at that first one, some of his comments on the relentless march and the problem of time. And what we're going to find is the teacher says there's one kind of time, but there's also another kind of time. And he wants us into that other kind of time. And he does this in the context of work or our daily labor. So what I want to do is simply summarize chapter 2. It was a long reading, but the context is important because the context really helps us understand the part that we're interested in. And maybe you'd have your worship God open on your lap so because I'm going to be referring to some of the verses. So the teacher argues in chapter 2 uh, that we try to get two things out of our toil or our labor. You know, he's particularly talking about paid work. But I think it's bigger than that. It's our daily labor. And so he says, in our work, we, try, we want two things. We try to leave a legacy and we try to get satisfaction. So first, the problem with trying to leave a legacy is maybe you work for decades to build a career or build a company, but eventually you retire or you leave your job or you get fired. Verse 19, and he says, who can tell whether my successors are wise or foolish? So he's not trying to, you know, make an argument about morality here. He's just trying to observe what is. He says, somebody may come in and just completely dismantle the fruit of maybe decades of your labor. We lose control of what happens in all our work under the sun. That's his first point. The second point is we try to get satisfaction from our jobs. But how does that go? The problem, the teacher says in verse 23, is our days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. So there's a certain brute force to work. Work has a certain violence. It does a certain violence to us, regardless of what kind of work we do. You may love your job, but our jobs require a lot of us in life under the sun. And he says that even at night, our minds can't rest. We can't sleep because of thinking about work. And so again, He's just trying to make some observations. And what's his conclusion? It's the same as before. How meaningless. It's all meaningless, the teacher writes in verses 2, 19, and 23. And the idea here, um, there are a lot of concepts, but so much of life is like building a castle in the sand. You work and work, but eventually a wave comes along and washes it all away. Or so much of what you do is like vapor or smoke. 
it clouds you and you try to grab it, but then you find there's nothing there. But then there's a turn. <laughs> and I've got to, I just really want to emphasize this. Ecclesiastes is not a book just about disappointment and despair and desolation. It's really not. As Jacques Ellul writes about the book, in order to be prepared to hope in what does not deceive, we must first lose hope in everything that deceives. That's the writer's, that's the teacher's strategy. Last week we talked about getting uh, to the beyond me, but we learned that before we can get beyond me, we have to get to the end of me before we will get into the life and purposes of God. And that's the same with you. And so the teacher is trying to bring us to the end of ourselves related to the promise of uh, uh, to the problem of work. And then there's a turn. And what's the turn involve? The turn involves this important little fr- little phrase, the hand of God. So verse 24 Chapter 2, so I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. Now, this is new. This is different. This is a different message. This is a resolution. This is the consonant note in the dissonant song. So what is the hand of God? Think of it this way. The universe exists because God made it, and he made it to work on a cause-effect basis. But the universe is not controlled entirely by the uniformity of natural causes in a closed system. God graciously intervenes. So he made the machine, but he lives outside of the machine and can work into the machine that we call life. And that's the grace of God. So last week we learned the book culminates with the same message that you may have picked up at the very end of today's passage, and that's the fear of God. Why is it that he's trying to move us to the fear of God? Well, it's not that we fear God will smite us, but we fear life will not go well for us if we do not put our faith and our obedience with God. So the good news in today's reading starts with this. It's the hand of God. So again, this is the setup. There's so much of life that's toil. Uh, Many of you have paid jobs. Everybody is involved in toil and some degree of drudgery. But the teacher wants to say, uh, there's, there's something else. There's the intervention of the divine loving hand of God. And we can enjoy, we can have joy in simple pleasures of eating and drinking and finding satisfaction in our work when we put our faith in him and when we keep his commandments. So really, I think this is a preview of the incarnation. Uh, Jesus, what happened uh, with Jesus Christ? He broke into the world. It was the intervention of God. He came from heaven to earth to forgive sin and give us new and everlasting life, both now and forevermore. So this is really um, the backdrop. Now let's get 
uh, into chapter 3, and let's go deeper into the teacher's reflection on the problem of time. So he broadens out work into the realm of all of our daily activities. So if you don't have a paid job outside the home, uh, no problem. He's pulling all of us in now. And he's trying to describe for us how, you know, the type of activity that constitutes everyone's days. Chapter 3, verse 1. He says, for everything there is a season, a time for every activity under heaven. So look at the words carefully. This is one of the more famous sections of Ecclesiastes. People read it at funerals. It's often taken out of context as if it's meant to be an admonition to discern the times. Admittedly, some of the times and seasons seem harmless enough. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to cry and a time to laugh, a time to grieve and a time to dance, a time to search and a time to quit searching, a time to keep and a time to throw away. Harmless enough. But notice the poem also includes a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. So he's not bundling all of these times and seasons into what might be considered coming from the hand of God. He's reverting back. He's not commending the times. He's describing the vanity and meaningless of the times of our lives. And what he says is we're all caught in the oscillating rhythms of life. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how earnest you are. It doesn't matter what you purpose for your life. Everybody is the same. We're all subject to the same times and the same seasons. And nobody's life in and of itself can derive meaning and purpose from the oscillation of time. But then, So he he summarizes in verse 9, what do people really get for all their hard work? So that's why we started with work. He's still got work on his brain, but he's broadened it out. I have seen the burden God has placed on us all. So again, the teacher is back in our ordinary days. We pay the bills. We manage life at work. Then we get up and do it all over again the next day. And I think he's trying to get into our business a little bit in the church because in the church, a lot of what tends to happen is we get busier and busier and we cram our schedules and we fill up the church calendar. So how does the teacher answer the meaningless of our times and seasons and of our days? Well, his answer is in this thing he calls beauty. Verse 11, yet, so here's another turn, God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. So what the teacher is doing is he's introducing to us a new type of time. And in the New Testament version of this, there is chronos, there is 
clock time, there is the relentless march of time, and then you die. But then there's another type of time, and it's the kairos in the New Testament. It's the sublime time. It's the time that connects us to eternity. He's calling it the beautiful time. And so there's our ordinary lives, and then there's the hand of God. And the hand of God is connecting us to this altogether different kind of time. So it's eternal time because God has planted eternity in our hearts. So let's look at it just a little more closely. Above all, the writer says, this is time that God makes. So he purposes it. So this really is changing our vision of what is beauty. Often we think of beauty as objective and static, and maybe it's something like some people are born into beauty or not. So here's a beautiful woman or here's a handsome man or not. That's the way we think of beauty. But he's changing the notion of beauty. He is saying beauty is what God purposes. And so you can take two violins, for instance, and maybe on the one hand, you've got a so-called beautiful violin. It's shiny and new. On the other hand, you've got maybe a violin that's worn and weathered and chipped and scarred and used. And the question is, which is more beautiful? Well, the answer that the author would give is the one uh, that makes its way into the hands of the master the master musician. So neither is beautiful until it's purposed. That's his point. So repeatedly in the Psalms, the psalmist writes of the beauty of God's holiness. Beauty is not really a word that's used often in the Bible, but when it is used, it's often linked up with holiness. So beauty is uh, as moral, in a sense. It is linked up to the goodness of God. And so interestingly, um, the subversive nature of beauty is that God makes it and can make everything beautiful. Do you see that word there? God makes everything beautiful for its time. Do you see that in verse 11? So wait a minute, I thought only some things were beautiful. No, God makes everything or God can make all people and times beautiful if and as he purposes it. So here's the thing. This is how we understand subversive beauty. And this is how we become hopeful in the times. So we have the ordinary oscillations of our life. But it, the, the teacher says, no, they're not some that are beautiful and some that are not. God can make any of it beautiful in his time. And so that's why we can be hopeful in the midst of a painful conflict. We can be hopeful that God will make it beautiful. We can see something more in a situation where there's a long illness. We can expect God to do more out of something that we would consider hopeless. 
it all gets back to who it is who purposes and creates beauty and in what context God can make everything beautiful in his time. So, of course, the subversive beauty of God is found in the face of Christ on the cross. No one would look at the cross and say the cross is beautiful. But we know in Scripture the glory and the beauty of God is found in the face of Christ on the cross. And what that means is God doesn't see us merely as broken people in need of repair. He sees us as people who were created in the beauty of his image and are being restored uh, into that beauty through the forgiveness of sin and the resurrection to new life. So sin is always ugly. And some of you may have come in uh, today and you just feel in your own life, and we were confessing sin earlier, and you feel the ugliness of your sin. But the restoration, the forgiveness, and the restoration of God is always beautiful, and He is making beautiful, something beautiful, out of any of us and anybody, no matter what situation we're in right now. I think of it like a cactus. You know, a cactus plant is gnarly and prickly, and there's no apparent beauty in a cactus plant. So if you see a cactus plant in the desert, it's just sort of sitting there. But what happens in a cactus plant? At some appointed moment that nobody knows, a cactus plant will bloom a flower. And that's just a picture of the beauty that God can bring in his time. So what we're doing as a church is we're trying to get in touch, not just with our agency, not just with our function, not just uh, with the church that gets busy and ramps up its schedule, but we're trying to get connected as a church to our longing for beauty. A big part of the beauty in this church I see in the ministry of the volunteers we see the church. What's unique about our church? Well, one of the things is we see the church as the ministry of the people. So we invite everybody, if you are all in, to be part of a Sunday team. And why do we do that? Well, is that just because people, the church needs volunteers? Well, that's part of it, but not even most of it. Most of it is we don't become known and connected to a group of other people until the gifts and the passions that we have are on display. The beauty of who we are is on display through what we give to each other and the mission in the ministry of the church. So the beauty, I see many beautiful moments in the church when someone steps in and they offer the little piece that they have to offer and so the church becomes a beautiful symphony of every person playing his or her part. We watch, so we watch and wait for beautiful moments in the church. We don't just look for busy moments, we look for beautiful moments. During our Christmas tree giveaway event last month, I later heard um, that there was a man that thought he had a tree 
But then the trees ran out. And there was a couple from our church who was led to go to a store and on their own account buy another Christmas tree and to deliver it to this man's store, doorstep in Gilpin Court, a low-income housing development in our city. To me, it was a beautiful moment. Last Friday, I did a TRX class at my third place, the John Rolfe Y. And as the class was ending, uh, a woman who was on the bands next to me turned to me and said, uh, so is your church open yet? And what was surprising to me was, I don't think I'd ever spoken to this particular woman about our church. But one thing led to another, and she said that she and her husband were kind of looking for a church. And they, had, they liked the 815 service that another church was having. They liked that time, but it was down in Midlothian, and what they really wanted with something local. So I was just following the trail of the conversation, and eventually she said, we'd really love to come to your church sometime. And I thought, um, that's a beautiful moment, scripted out of eternity. So what are we uh, as we become Community West Church? We are people who will want to have excellent programming and excellent activity but we are all because we are all part of the oscillations of the times and the seasons, the back and forth. But we're recognizing today that we're also people who hunger and have longings. And this side of Jesus returning will always have those longings. But the church above all places should purpose beauty. And so we had this sanctuary where we purpose it to be a place where you can meet with God. And we have the beauty of the outside brought inside. And we're purposing really that our land development plan would emphasize beauty. Why in all of that? It's because we're people, not just a function and agency, but we are people who long for eternity we long for God because God has planted eternity in our hearts. St. Augustine said this, The whole life of the good Christian is a holy longing. That is our life to be trained by longing. And I think our longing for beauty trains us to worship God. I hope you'll join us on this new unique journey called Community West Church. Will you pray with me? Most of all, oh God, we thank you for the subversive beauty found in your son dying on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. The bedrock of what we believe. The beauty of yourself found in the face of your son. We pray that many would receive the beauty of the offer of forgiveness and the restoration to new life. We thank you for all that you've given us and we pray that you would continue to renew us in the way of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen.